Chapter Thirty of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter Thirty. I get me to a nunnery. On looking back at the time we spent in the Alpes Maritimes, it seems to fall into as definite an atmosphere as though it were enclosed in a magic bubble. It is even distinct from the rest of the Provencal period, which we spent wandering through the sunny, faintly coloured land that stretches from Marseilles to Avignon, though that too was wonderful. But everyone is either mountain lover or plain lover, and Peter and I discovered we were both of the former. In this magic bubble, until memory peers into it in detail, a few impressions stand out more vividly than others, or rather, are nearer to the surface. Queer little impressions, some of them, yet all things trivial in themselves that went to make up life that winter. The smell of the smouldering fir cones that came from the glossy green-tiled stove in the dining-room. The more pricking odour that blew in gusts on to me in my bedroom when my wood-fire was lighted of an evening. And here I may mention, in passing, that wood-fires have held no charm for me since. Turn your back for a moment and they go out, leaving you to wrestle with inadequate bellows and the fir-cones, which are the only things the nuns grudge, as though they were heart's blood. A wood-fire is very pleasant at its best, but it's one woman's work to keep it up to the mark. The sight of the nuns out in the long walled garden with wide black straw hats put on over their flowing veils, so that they looked oddly like ebon cardinals. The glimpse I once had of Sir Isabel coming towards me down the path, the sun behind her, so that her face framed in its white gimp, and her long slim neck where the linen was closely swathed, showed darker than her black veil, the fall of which from crown to shoulders on either side was rendered transparent by the sunlight, a thin vibrant half-tone between the solid shadow made by her graceful head and neck, and the brilliant lightness of the sun-bathed garden. I never saw anything that was at once so lovely and so paintable. The lovely things are often untranslatable in paint. The flickering of the dusty brown lizards over the paths, the glitter of the olive foliage as it caught wind and sun, the feel of the loose stones on the wilder mountainsides, slipping and crunching under one's feet, and the two curiously distinct effects of the Alpes Maritimes, the effect of little medieval towns with dim brown roofs fluted by rain-stained purple, with shutter-winged windows and towers and turrets pricked against the sky, and the effect, almost as fascinating in its way, of the little modern villas set in their prim gardens of cacti and mimosa, their whitewashed walls decorated with a frieze of painted flowers, and their gaudy doorways flanked by enormous dragons in turquoise china. 
these are the things with an impression of sunshine over all which go to make up the memory of that time in the mountains there was a bad spell of course when for one dreadful week the snow lay even in the valleys and all day long the frozen sleet beat past the window whilst i nearly congealed in my little north room with its stone floor for i could only afford to light my fire at night during the day i sat wrapped up in my coat and the eiderdown my feet on a chaufferette and my blue fingers guiding a quivering brush as i sheeked illustrations from the sketches done in sunnier moments yet i have to gaze very deep into my bubble to find that week it has no place in the prevailing atmosphere from my window i saw the old walled garden where the convent linen swayed back and forth from the fruit trees through a sidling checkerwork of shadow and rounds of sun and on clear days i could catch a gleam of sea miles away and below beyond the descending ranges peter lurked at a grubby little inn called the cafe de l'univers et de portugal why portugal was thus dragged in by the heels i never could imagine and he looked across the market square through the penciled silver of the naked plane-tree boughs to where the mountains rose beyond the roofs fold on fold and peak on peak till their tawny rock and scrub of myrtle gave way to bleaker heights still while highest and furthest of all gleamed the snow peaks yes it was a wonderful little town but even there life was not entirely lyrical humour is never the highest poetry though it is the salt of life and of humour i think a convent produces its fair share the nuns themselves were charming they were simple-minded without that aggressive cheeriness and readiness to be bright at trifles which one finds in an english convent they were childlike but not in the least childish the boarders however were of a different breed like myself they were unattached spinsters with slender purses and they consisted of a couple of americans three french and besides myself two englishwomen we all had a deadly likeness to each other i used to feel the sameness growing more and more pervading and it took long tramps over the mountains with sound sleeps among the friendly myrtle bushes to keep me at all free of it there is a type of woman not of any one nationality who flocks with those of her own feather both by instinct and circumstances the type of the elderly spinster and here let me hasten to say that i do not necessarily mean by this an unmarried woman the true elderly spinster is born so she can be of either sex and married or single it is a cast of mind and to it nearly all of us boarders conformed in all the more frequented of the hill towns that lie behind the fashionable seaboard there is a convent pension 
where the wandering woman rests for a while at as few francs a day as possible, for she is seldom well off, generally possessing that incompetency spoken of by her male relatives as quite a nice income for a woman. Of the English women, one alone did not fall into this type, and she was charming, the kind of Englishwoman who has iron-grey hair, humorous eyes, and an appreciation of beauty that makes her travel in discomfort sooner than not at all. She lent me a rubber bath, but that is another story. Next to her, at the head of the table, sat the other specimen of our race, a gaunt, spectacled female with oily hair and a dark stuff dress with a tucker in the unyielding collar of it. She had a genius for crushing all conversation by remarking simply and heavily, You cannot possibly mean what you say, a thing she invariably said to me, whom she detested. A gloomy soul she never admired anything, and on those wonderful days of southern spring, when the clear pale sky seems literally to sparkle with light. She would murmur, It's not what I call blue. I expected the sky to be Reckitt's blue. It ought to be Reckitt's blue. And she called it Ricketts at that. Conversation with her was apt to take the form of an Ollendorf exercise, do what one would. You have a room due south, haven't you? I would venture. Yes, but the stove burns badly, so I am never warm. But you haven't caught cold, have you? No, I have not caught a cold, but I have the rheumatism. On the left, opposite the nice Englishwoman and next to me, sat one of the French ladies. She was dowdy with that triumphant dowdiness it takes a Frenchwoman to attain. She had an egg-shaped bust and arranged her sleekly watered hair over her forehead in what is, I believe, known as a Piccadilly dip. She was chiefly remarkable for having a nephew, a bullet-headed young soldier, with pale hair so closely shorn that the pink of his skull showed through. Sometimes this youth was allowed to come and lunch, but though there was an empty seat at table, he was not allowed to grace it. No, he was put at a little side-table with his back to us, and ate his déjeuner in solitary state, while we could only gaze in regretful admiration at his blue coat and his beautiful red trousers. Apart from her nephew, no particular interest attached to this lady. She was above everything, in that room of lone, lorn females, an aunt, on my other side, for my sins, sat one of the Americans. The other American was as charming as the nice Englishwoman, alarmingly cultured, it is true, with a little notebook in which she put down anything that struck her, but with the ease and polish and true kindliness that the best Americans have, perhaps more strongly than the members of any other nation. But alas! She who sat next me was not of that kind, and she added to a habit of sucking her false teeth till they clicked, another habit which she called saving up for the next course. 
This consisted of piling up remnants of the last dish upon her bread, and then transferring them, in a congealed state, to her next plate, no matter what it contained. "'I can make most anything go together,' she would say placidly, spreading cold fried carrots on her cheese. And when I rashly suggested she should try wine over the lot, she tipped her red van ordinaire on to the plate, and consumed the concoction with relish. I think we all felt the limit had come when she saved mayonnaise sauce on her bread in limp creamy festoons, and finally, with an anticipatory click of her ghoulish teeth, transferred it to a baked apple. The two remaining French women were old darlings, though they took some knowing, but having once admitted me to their hearts, they spoiled me thoroughly. However, they did not unbend all at once, and Christmas was an ordeal over which I still laugh. On the eve I was late for dinner, having stopped on my way back from a tramp in the mountains at the florist shop. There, in the damp coolness of it, with the girls busily packing at the long tables, and the air filled with the bitter-sweet smell of newly-cut rose stems, I bought seven bunches of violets and an armful of the tightly furled little red rosebuds that look more like bundles of radishes than anything else, until they open into velvety sweetness. The roses were for the nuns to put in the chapel, but the violets I destined for my fellow boarders. Being late, I leapt straight into the dining-room as I was, with snow on my hat and coat, and my face tingling from my walk, the violets heaped in my arms. In the midst of a ghastly silence I began to go round the table, laying an offering by each plate. I deposited the first bunch with an appropriate little speech by the lady of the Piccadilly Dip, who was too overcome by surprise, or some other emotion, to utter a word, and her example must have been infectious. The flowers were received in silence, save for an inarticulate gurgle of hysteria from my nice Englishwoman, whose eye I dared not catch. That table seemed miles long, and I worked down one side of it in stony embarrassment. But by the time I had progressed up the other and arrived at the spectacled one, I was quite enjoying it and she nearly choked with spleen at having to accept anything from so frivolous a person as myself. And at last, when somewhat flushed but considerably less agonized than the rest of the company, I sank back in my own seat. I realized I wouldn't have missed the affair for anything. By twelfth night we all knew each other better, and with the exception of the spectacled one, and she of the movable teeth, kept up an animated chatter at meal-times. Yet somehow, on that day, the depression of the thing, of these drifting women, their aimless lives and futility, caught at me and would not let go. The déjeuner began gaily, because it was a feast day, and that meant coffee, and besides that there was the excitement of the gâteau des trois rois. 
We were all worked up over this because each of us hoped to find in her slice one of the little china figures. Why it is called the Cake of the Three Kings I don't know, except of course to celebrate the epiphany, for the little figures consist of a tiny bearded man, a woman with flowing hair, and a baby. One of my two dear old French ladies, the one who was fabulously ancient, had a bristling white beard and a bosom on which the large jet buttons lay like plates on a shelf, nearly swallowed the baby. She retrieved it by a method admirably simple and direct, and made a little throne for it in her bread. The baby was quite naked, and welded as one soul with a bright green tree trunk. The king and queen fell to the Americans, one of whom at once remarked that she must make a note in her journal of such a curious custom, while the other opined it was a pity the figures weren't made of sugar. And then, why I don't know, the futility and horror of the whole crowd of us bore down on me. You do not eat, you cannot be well, mise vive, cried one of the old French ladies. You must come to my room after déjeuner, and I will give you a tonic and some biscuits. One would say you were her mother, the way you fuss over her, grumbled the fabulously old lady. So I am her mother, declared the first dauntlessly. No more than am I, snapped the aged one. You are both my mothers, and I adore you, said I hastily. But I could not escape the tonic which took the form of a secret bottle of Benedictine from a cupboard. And not to be behindhand, the very old lady called me into her room, and insisted on pouring a lot of quinine hair-restorer on to the top of my head. That will make you feel better, she cooed, stirring it round on my crown with a fat white finger. In her cupboard, too, was a secret store of eatables, and I had to refuse a strange assortment of them, ranging from licorice drops to potted meat. I began to see that these stores made part of the life of a lone woman, that when unhappy or bored she held a private orgy of sweet biscuits and throat pastilles, and this was the crowning touch to my depression. I fled to my own room, where a tiny square of sun made a glowing patch on the red-tiled floor. Outside the sky showed a clear vibrant blue, and a young soft wind met my heated cheeks. A knock at the door, and the little shiny-faced bright-eyed lay sister who waited on us peeped in to inform me that Monsieur Monami had arrived to take me out. I crammed on the jaunty little leather hat that was the admiration of the nuns, cast my painting things into my rucksack, and in another moment was through the house where the smell of dinner still held the air, and in the sweet-scented out-of-doors with Peter. End of chapter 30